Hey, did, did everyone get this, the sermon card? This is a marvelous thing. You cannot imagine how much time Dave Furman spent putting this together. I know it's just a little card. But I mean, there's hours and hours here of lining up people's schedules. The, the sermon text is not that difficult. We're just going through the book of Mark. Obviously, you know, just one next to the other. But even that involves some time, doesn't it, Dave? I mean, you have to divide it up and figure out who's going. And it's just wonderful. I, I'm the first one on the list, which meant you didn't know I was coming today. But that's because we want you to come. Uh, <laughs> But what a lineup. Great, great preaching. We're going to hear from Brian and Lenny and Dave and Glenn. And uh, Thibidi Anyabwile is going to be here with us. Thibidi Anyabwile is going to be with us uh, in March. Again, his fourth visit here. Long-time visit with us doing the Muslim-Christian Dialogue. Uh, John Fulmer is going to be a guest speaker. So, yeah, exciting things. Take this home and pray for us. Uh, because it represents a lot of work on Dave's part. But also a tremendous look at how we want... This church to be fed through the Word of God. So it's a wonderful thing. I've been gone a little bit, a couple weeks in the States. It's so good to be back with you. I miss you every day. I pray for you every day. pray for you. (laughs) See your smiling pictures, those of you who are members smiling up at me out of the membership directory. And uh, as we pray through the membership directory, and I, I think about the warm breezes of Dubai while I was slogging through the snow and cold. (laughs) That made me miss you a lot. And uh, most of all, I miss the warmth of our fellowship and what God is doing here at Redeemer. We are so excited to hear the stories of faith that are happening in your lives. And we want you to know what a great encouragement you are, not just just to us, those of us who uh, are a part of Redeemer and the fellowship here, but around the world, God is raising up you to make sure that His witness is known here, that His name is known in this place. What a marvelous thing. Hey, you want to hear a secret? No? No, everybody loves secrets, right? Everyone would. Yeah, all of you were looking at me, right? What's the secret going to be? You know, what what do you think of when you think of secrets? Like a secret birthday party? I went to a, I went to a surprise birthday party once, and it was such a surprise that the person's birthday it was didn't show up. <laughs> it was very unfortunate. We had an ice cream cake for her, and so, you know, it was melting, so what do you do? You know, we were college students, we, we ate her cake. <laughs> and when she found about it, her name was Nell, she cried. <laughs> Those secrets can hurt too, can't they? Hey, I know a secret. There's a baby coming. And nobody knows when, do they, Gloria? I mean, no one knows when this baby's going to come. This has been a perf- particularly fruitful church. <laughs> so we have lots of babies almost every week. And it's always a bit of a surprise. Not always. Sometimes you can schedule them. Uh, not this baby, not the Furman baby. But, that, you know, I mean, usually. Have you, have you been following the news about secrets, about WikiLeaks? You, you know that, that website? Where apparently, apparently some low-level uh, American military uh, guy took reams of military data and, and cables from diplomatic corps and stuck them on CDs and they posted them on the web. You can actually go on the web and read all these secrets. <laughs> I mean, things that, things that were supposed to... Yeah, now, most of these secrets are pretty just kind of embarrassing, you know, talking about people in catty ways and stuff like that. But it's I just people are having fits about the release of all these secrets. I mean, you can... If you have the right secret... You can even sell them, you know? I mean, it's, uh, secrets can be very powerful. Well, the passage this morning in Mark chapter 4 is kind of about a secret. 
Because the Bible has secrets too. Those things which are hidden to be made known. Things not clear. Maybe not clear to a generation. There were so many things in the Old Testament that people had as, uh, as their own through the Word that they couldn't understand. They didn't, they didn't know what it was about because it was a secret. It wasn't for them. It was meant to be revealed to us, to those of us later who come down. And so Peter would tell us that the, the ancients longed to understand these secrets, but they weren't for them. They gave the prophecies about what was to happen. They, they gave the words of what would come, those secrets, those things held under in mystery wraps by God, only to be revealed. You know, the greatest secret, of course, was Jesus. <laughs> he was a secret. And as we go through the book of Mark, we see how the secret is being revealed. So he, he doesn't just come and pronounce, oh, I'm here. You know, if I, if, if, if I had been the Messiah... You know, and I was the son of God. I would have shown up uh, in, in Jerusalem. I would have hired the best choir, you know, the big band. I would have brought in uh, the top political speakers. And then I would have made my announcement, right? I mean, that's, how, that's how humans would do it. If you, if you were that big and that important, you'd have a big show, right? Listen to what Jesus does. Because frankly, he's not concerned about the show. It's very interesting to see how God works and how his ways are not our ways. Just like we... Read this morning from, from Shonel, as Shonel read to us out of Isaiah 55. That his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He does things differently. I uh, remember going to a missions conference by way of illustration years and years ago. This dates me, when I was in college, with my beautiful fiancé who was sitting on the front row. And uh, we were secretly engaged. It was a secret. And we, we heard, we heard uh, someone read out of Isaiah 6. And, and Isaiah 6 is, is the passage of Scripture that is read at almost every missions conference. <laughs> Anytime you go to a missions conference, you're going to hear Isaiah 6, seems like. At least it certainly was back, back in our days. Back in the, what was it? Back in the 70s. Oh, my word. And so uh, uh, we heard this passage about how Isaiah showed up in heaven and, and was there in the, in the royal court where God's train filled the temple and there was smoke and there were angels and there was con deep conviction on the part of Isaiah about his own sin before holy God. And then God issues the call, right? The call. Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, I will. And then the speaker, whoever it was, I've long forgotten, you know, kind of issued the, the same, who will go? And, you know, everyone, you know, everyone, because they're all whipped up, you know, we're college students, you know, we all, I will, you know, wow, this is great, how cool, you know, it's in me, right? Got back to my dorm room, opened my Bible, read the rest of the passage, and it's really, really difficult. It's not like that at all. Go and say to this people, God continues after issuing this call. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy, their ears unhearing, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, this is Isaiah speaking, then I said, how long, O Lord? He's asking the question, how long do I have to proclaim this, this awful message? 
And he said, that is God, until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a tirbeth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. That was the message? <laughs> that, that was what Isaiah, the great prophet of Isaiah, is asked to go preach to the nation of Israel? I can't imagine that. What would that be like? What would that be like for Isaiah? This is his people. It was a mystery, it was secret. What did this mean? What could it possibly mean? Well, of course, part of it is judgment. The judgment of God. And then Jesus comes. He he is this seed, the holy seed. He is the one that is raised up for salvation. That's part of the secret. And so, it's no accident that as part of the fulfillment of Isaiah 6 is for Jesus to come into this wasteland, this backwater nation of Israel, and demonstrate that he is the fulfillment of this prophecy by telling this parable, the very first parable in the book of Mark. It's about seeds. (laughs) He even quotes Isaiah 6 as a way for us to understand why he's telling parables. Let's read it. Let's read Mark chapter 4. I'm going to read the whole thing, but we're going to mostly focus on the parable with Jesus' explanation that follows. But we'll read through the whole thing, starting in verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it on the lake while all the people were along, along the shore at the water's edge. He talked them many things by parables and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on the rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so that they could not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying thirty, some sixty, some a hundred times. Then Jesus said, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables, and he told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, never hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes, takes away, his, takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. 
But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When troubles or persecutions come, because of, because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeing sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. Well, parables are stories of obvious, uh, simple things that teach about hard and hidden things. In fact, the parables of Jesus contain bigger secrets than you're going to find on WikiLeaks. They reveal things of spiritual truths about our own spiritual lives. You know, there's only 130 words in this little parable, but it's been around for millenniums. You've, I'm, I'm sure if you've gone to church at all in your life, you've probably heard a sermon on, on this parable. I can tell you it's going to be around for millenniums to come if the Lord tarries. It will always be in the earth long after WikiLeaks is gone. And they reveal secrets. This parable is enacted as Jesus speaks. You notice that? Even as he talks, the very thing that he's talking about is happening. This very thing. He's sowing seeds of spiritual truth in people's hearts. Now, for all the sermons that you've probably heard on, on this passage, it's amazing how, how many different things I've heard talked about. Um, but, but this parable is not primarily about the sower or the ground or even the seed. This parable is about a response, different kinds of response to the Word of God. I think it's important to note that all, all these people that are represented in the, in the four kinds of soil hear the Word. All of them hear it. So they're at church or they've got a friend who shares the gospel with them. or, or In some ways, they read the Scripture, they hear the Word. But it's about their response. Notice how this parable is bracketed with the same command to listen, to listen. So let's, let's look at these four places the seed falls. Jesus says the first place the seed falls or is sown is on the hard path in verse 4. Now, uh, there, there are many, many commentaries about parables. I mean, you can have just books on the parables that explain parables. But, uh, and there's lots of commentaries that you can purchase about the parables. But in this place, Jesus actually gives his own commentary, which is the best commentary about what's going on. So when he's alone with the disciples, he teaches them about the parable and about, about what it means. And this is his commentary in verses 14 to 15 about what the hard path represents. He says the seed is the word of God. In this case, the hard ground uh, isn't, doesn't allow purchase of the seed. It doesn't even sprout. It's just, it's just picked off by the birds, which is an image of Satan. The hard path is a hard heart. And, and you probably, if you, if you have any desire as a Christian to share your faith, you, you know this person. You've talked to him, right? You know, you, you, maybe, maybe when you became a believer, you were excited about Jesus. You, you told someone about him, and, and you got that, I don't know how to describe it, that blank stare, you know, kind of. 
sometimes people are patronizing. They are there. <laughs> sometimes people think you're crazy, like you've lost the little. You know, sometimes there's this awkward, this awkward change of subject, you know. <laughs> That's the, that's the hard person's response. That hard-heartedness to spiritual truth. Now, I, I think it's amazing because in one sense, they never, they never think that maybe it's true. They never, it never occurs to them that Jesus might be who He said He was, the Son of the living God. The one who died for us, that we might be set, from, uh, set free from a life of sin to live a life of joy and eternal bliss with God. They hear the word, but it doesn't penetrate their hearts. And where Satan is there to remove it. That is, there is a spiritual force that is out to remove truth from your life. Maybe you've not only met this person, but you've been this person. Maybe in your past you can remember hard-heartedness to God's Word. Where, where you just disregarded the things of God. So you understand. You understand this person. Maybe, just maybe, you're that person right now. Sitting here right now. And let me say to you, if you're here, and I know you are, and we're glad you're here, if you're here, and you can hear me right now, you hear me right now, that in some mysterious, even secret way of God, you've kind of you've stepped out of just listening to a story. You've become a part of the story. You and I see are now in the story. The sower is not Jesus. The sower is anyone who shares the Word of God. So, listen. If you can hear me, suddenly you're listening to this story and you're wondering, is it true about God? You should listen very, very carefully. I, I promise you, I promise you there's another hard-hearted person in this room right now. And they can't hear me. I might as well, I might as well be standing up here going... Blah, 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 blah for them. But for you, suddenly, and it is a moment, God opens your mind to receive the Word of God. Listen, I have a warning. The very fact that the Word of God has come to you is an astounding opportunity. You should know that going about your life without Christ and thinking that's okay is a mark that Satan has stolen from you. Jesus says, listen. The second place the seed lands is verse 5. It's rocky soil. It produces a plant that springs up, but because it has no root, when the sun comes up, it withers and dies. Later, to the disciples in verses 16 and 17, Jesus makes commentary that this is a person who receives the word, but can't face persecution, can't face trials as it inevitably comes. Trials will always come to you, Christian. 
If you're here and you're a follower of Christ, listen, you, you, you must know that. You don't get away from trials. They will come. They will come because the Word grows in you. And as the Word grows in you, it's not just that we test the Word with our faith. It tests you. It calls you. God's Word calls you. It divides. It judges. It calls you to put your faith in Him and live that away which will be diametrically opposed to the world. And trials will come. When I was in Cape Town in October, I had lunch with a friend, a Christian from Iran. And he said to me then, it's not a matter of if we're going to be arrested, but when. We know it's coming. The government opposes our faith just for being a Christian. On Christmas Day, he and 70 people were arrested, 70 miles from here. Just because he's a believer in Christ. Arrested, thrown in jail. We haven't heard from him. We don't know where he is. And he knew it was coming. And you know why I know he's walking with Christ even though he's in jail right now? It's because he has root. There's root in the man. He's faced enormous trials. You know, really, we we can't know who uh, uh, this person is, this shallow-rooted person is until they face trial. We, we, we can't see that person until they go through a hard time because of the Word. I'm not talking about the trials that everyone goes through in life. I'm talking about the trials that come to us because we are followers of Christ and we take Christ at His Word. This superficial Christian tends to think that they have a right to a happy life. This superficial Christian is the person you say, hey, how's, how's so-and-so doing? Oh, not too good. She's not really walking with the Lord. She's dating this non-Christian guy. I have... Oh, how sad. She seems so excited about Jesus. Right? We, we, we know that person. Right? They want spiritual candy for their diet. They, they are hothouse flowers. You know, you know what I mean by hothouse flowers? Uh, green, uh, some, uh, some, maybe some English traditions say greenhouse flowers. You know, flowers that can only exist in perfect conditions. And as soon as something hard comes, they're out of there. I didn't sign up for this. They might be enthusiastic about God, but they want God on their terms. Listen, there's a couple warnings for us about this kind of response to the Word of God. Number one, it's a warning to remember that initial response to the Word, no matter how enthusiastic, is not good enough. It doesn't encapsulate the whole. Modern evangelists, uh, I mean, many many wonderful modern evangelists out there, but many modern evangelists have honed this kind of manipulation to a fine art. Public speakers know that if, if you can, if, if a public speaker like myself knows that I can get you to laugh and then cry, tell you a story that makes you laugh and then cry, I do that for about 40 minutes. Laugh, cry, laugh, cry. At the end of that time, your mind is mush and I can make you do anything at the end of it. Walk an aisle, raise a hand, pray a prayer. But that's, that's not what we're trying to do here. Remember, response is not enough. 
It may be psychological. It may be kind of a fear. But it doesn't mean it's true faith. We don't want to manufacture response. Religious cults have done this for years. It's why we spend so much time here at Redeemer trying to get things taught well and correctly. Though, believe me, we we long for response to God's Word. We long for you to come to faith. We don't want you to do that apart from deep roots. To sink your roots deep. The second warning is that trials are coming. You should expect persecution. Um, It just happens. And uh, you should know that though Satan is not mentioned in this section as he was in the previous one where he steals the word, he's just as active. If he doesn't steal the word, he will oppose you with force. Perhaps you see yourself more in this superficial Christian response. Maybe it's time to resolve to sink some deep roots in Christ so that when the inevitable tribulation comes, you'll be ready. Listen, come to the men's meeting tomorrow. We need men who will stand up for Christ. You women, I want to commend you. You guys are great. You men, on the other hand, get more training. I see you all smiling. Look, look, come come to the men's meeting tomorrow. This isn't just a plug for the men's meeting tomorrow. Come and get rooted in Christ. We need men who will stand up when things get hard. We need men who understand the Word. You need to be trained deeply in God. And women, I hope you heard that as a compliment. I appreciate how well you train yourself. Uh, most of you seem so devoted to the Word. You often outserve your, your, the men around here and your husbands and, and other folks. Uh, and I want to say keep coming to uh, the women's study and keep growing there. The third response, the third soil Jesus teaches about, is a plant that actually grows in verse 7. Now, the problem here is not the root or the leaf, but about the surroundings. It's choked out by the thorns. Jesus' commentary later to his disciples in verses 18 through 19 is that the thorns that suffocate are, quote, worries of this life, deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires of for other things and that it makes them unfruitful. If the seed with no root withers quickly, the previous seed, this seed takes time. It's the grind. It's the slow, choking death of the world. Frankly, it's the most common and I would say it's a plague in Dubai. We we know this person, don't you? They go to church. They hear, they believe. But over time, they begin to long for wealth and success and the desires of the world. It overtakes their lives. They want to have it both ways. Earthly success with kind of Jesus added in. Right? Right? But notice here, Jesus says they have worries of this life. That's because if you desire the world, you get the worries of the world too. I was with a a friend last week named Philip who commented that in his family, they had made worry a way of life. (laughs) Maybe, Maybe some of you come from families like that, where, you know, everything is managed basically by worrying. 
right? You know, you know that. He said every time they left the house, uh, you know, there was some, there was some, you know, kind of comment about worry. Be careful. <laughs> so every every comment about, uh, you know, pick up the phone. Everything okay? And and he said, you know, it, it's a great way to kind of manage things, right? If you're constantly worried about stuff, you can manage the family or manage the business because you're constantly worried that some detail is going to not come out right, right? But listen, the worries of the world lead to neuroses in our life. They make us neurotic. They make us weird acting, right? I mean, we're all weird acting in some way. I know, I'm weird acting. We're all weird acting. But I mean, worries give us kind of these obsessions in life. And they kill real faith. Worries kill faith. It's no wonder the world requires it of you. If you desire the world, you want the world. You may get the world, but what the world requires of you is to have faith in the world, not Jesus. In fact, I, I think I could argue that the world requires more faith of you in its system than Jesus does in his. That he is more gracious, he is more compassionate, he is more loving. But the world, no, the world doesn't do that to you. The world takes you and squeezes you. If you want the world, you may get it, but it will kill you and it will kill faith. Make no mistake, it will choke you to death. Listen, says Jesus. Fourth, and finally, there are people who listen. In verse 8, they accept the word. Their hearts are not hard. Their roots are equal to their leaves. They persevere through persecution. They are not tempted by the things the world has to offer. They are fruitful, in verse 20. That's the true mark of true faith. Fruitfulness. We, we, we should ask, if we know people like this, we know this person too, right? The fruitful person. We see them. And it's not production, you know? It's not just stamping out, kind of stamping out spiritual stuff. <laughs> you know, I went here, I did this, I accomplished that. No, it's not none of that. That's, that's worldly thinking too. No, it's more like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 where Paul talks about the fruit that's produced in a faithful life. So it starts with love. I love, I love Sam calling himself a fool and asking requests for love this morning in his prayer request. Wasn't that great? Uh, because that's humility. <laughs> that's humility. And the, the, the prayer for love is a prayer we all need. Love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit that comes out of our life. Are you fruitful yourself? We don't just think of other people. We think of ourselves. In fact, this is, this is a mirror. Jesus gives us a mirror in these soils to look at ourself. Are we hard to the Word? Are we shallow in the Word? Are we seduced? Or do we bear fruit? You know, in fact, the best way to tell if you're a Christian, a real Christian, is not to ask yourself when you prayed a prayer of salvation, although you may have come to faith then, the real way to tell if you're a real Christian is to look for fruit in your own life and be asking yourself, am I bearing fruit? Ask yourself, do gospel truths seem to be growing in my life? Am I pursuing holiness? Is 
Love increased in my life. Am I a more compassionate person? Do you see yourself moving from a self-centered, selfish life to a self-denying life? Does the gospel make sense to you? Do you you know and understand the message of God? That is the gospel. Do, Do you preach it to yourself? Do you preach it to others? How a holy And loving God sent His Son to be a ransom for sinners like you and me. How how Christ paid for our sins on the cross and opened a way of escape for us to leave a life of sinfulness and enter into an eternal love relationship with the living God. And now, all there is for us to do is to turn in simple faith And trust in Christ. By putting our faith and trust in Christ, we turn from sin and turn to Him and are forgiven and accepted by this God. Jesus says at the end of the story, listen, make sure you understand the four responses. Now, when Jesus says listen, He doesn't just mean... uh, like I would say to my sons, sit up your seat. <laughs> now, I am tempted at times to do that to you when you're sitting in a sermon, especially if I go on a little too long, right? Sit up. Listen up, right? That's what I do to my sons. Now, that does, not mean, <laughs> that does not mean that they really do it. I mean, well, they sit up straight, but they don't really listen. They might look at me, but, you know, it's just, it means just act like you're listening to me, right? It doesn't really mean they're really listening. That's not what Jesus means here when he says listen. He means Think about what I'm saying. Accept it in your life. Take hold of it. Humbly submit yourself to the Word of God. That's what he means here. Did, did you listen? Did you hear? Did you see these odd little verses, 10, 11, and 12? A little difficult, aren't they? <laughs> I think it's really strange. I was talking to Dave about this over the phone this week because I always call Dave up to get the answers. And um, I called him and I said, you know, I think it's really strange that the explanation that Jesus gives about the parable is more difficult than the parable itself. And the parable is pretty straightforward, right? I mean, it's just four soils, different kinds of responses. And then Jesus messes it all up by going and saying this. When he was alone with the twelve and the others around him and they asked him about the parables, he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. Okay, we're fine with that. That's okay. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parable, so that they may may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. He's quoting Isaiah 6 here. Now, Jesus speaks about entering the kingdom. The word of the gospel is the portal to the kingdom. There is this realm that we enter into. It's the kingdom of God. The only way to enter into the realm of the kingdom of God is through the cross, the gospel of Christ. And it means that there are those inside. They understand stuff. They get more from Jesus. They hear the secrets. And there are those outside. And it's just mumbo-jumbo to them. They can't figure it out. They don't know what this thing's about. Now, now the odd thing, the modern ears, 
is it seems that Jesus is saying God doesn't want everyone in the kingdom. That, now that, that goes against kind of modern sensibilities, doesn't it? <laughs> we, we think God wants everyone in. We think that if you don't get in, it's kind of plan B, right? But somehow it doesn't sound like plan B, it sounds like plan A here. Why would Jesus speak in a way that would keep some out, just like Isaiah? But could it be, maybe, that when we have problems with this text, it's because we don't like it? It's not because it's not true or not clear. We just don't like it. Maybe it's not all that difficult to understand. Maybe it's just that we don't want this to be God's way. But this is God's way. Maybe I'm not describing you. Maybe you have no problems with the sovereignty of God, that God is supreme, the Lord, and that everything in the universe points to Him, not to us. You know, there's this tendency to get it backwards and to think that everything here is about us and that God is here to serve us and to minister to us and take care of us. What Actually, no, it's very clear from the Scriptures, we're here for Him, for His glory, for His name. And I think you agree with me, Christian. I think you agree with me. That that's, that's what we want. We don't want to live for me or you. <laughs> what a pathetic small kingdom that would be. We live for God and His kingdom. Maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe you have submitted to the sovereignty of God. So you don't, you don't have problems with other verses. You could read John 15, 16 with no problem. That's, that's the verse where Jesus is speaking to the disciples and he comes to them and says, let's clear something up. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And I chose you to bear much, what? Fruit. Just like this parable. You, you have no problems with Ephesians 1 where God says he knew you before the foundations of the earth and chose you. He says in Ephesians 2.8 that nothing, nothing in our salvation is from, is from ourselves. It's a gift of God. It's grace so that none of us can boast. You, you have no problems with Romans 9 where the, the potter is taking lumps of clay and making it into different kinds of pots and the pot doesn't have a right to talk to the potter and tell him, I don't want to be this pot. I don't want to be that pot. No, it's... If you understand, if you understand that God hardens hearts as he did to Pharaoh for his purposes to gain glory from, for himself, if you understand that God chose the Hebrew people as a people for himself that prefigures the church, not, not because they were special, actually because they were so hard-hearted and stubborn and stiff-necked and rebellious, it gave God more glory to choose them. If you agree if you agree that the bridegroom can pick the bride, then you have no problems with this kingdom talk of inside or outside. Some are in the inside chosen, those who listen. Some are on the outside, those who won't listen. And that's how God has set it up. You see, God's word divides. So in Isaiah 55, when we, when we talk about my word goes out and accomplishes its purpose, it means that it judges, it divides, it separates. And some hear it and say, this is foolish nonsense. 
And others say, Oh God, save me, a sinner. Right? Because ultimately, in the end, there is no middle ground. Ultimately, in the end, there's only two kinds of people. Those with fruit and those without. I think you agree with me, though. If you read the Scriptures, because you know that one day everyone in this room will stand before the judgment seat of God. Everyone. And those of us who know Jesus, we will say, we brought little into this deal except our sin. Oh, thank you God for our great salvation. We will acknowledge that it is the Holy Spirit who worked in us, convicting us of our sin, moving us to cry out with saving faith. Faith itself is a gift. I was talking with a, a friend last week and he, he was sharing with his colleague at work and uh, they'd been talking for a number of weeks and this guy, this, this guy told him, I wish I had your faith. Have you heard that before? I wish I had your faith. It was kind of, it's a little patronizing, <laughs> frankly. But what he said was brilliant. He said, I will pray for you to have faith because faith is a gift. That's absolutely true. Even when we're convicted of our sin, even when we acknowledge we have nothing to do with it, even then God gives us faith to cry out in saving faith to God, oh God, save me. We didn't save ourselves. It was Jesus on the cross. His work became a ransom for us. His work purchased us at a great price. And by His grace, by His grace alone, we might know God. We might become the children of God. So that when we stand before Him on that last day in judgment, we don't point to ourselves. No, sir. We bow. We point to Jesus. We say nothing but the blood. Now make no mistake, we do choose God. Christians are not fatalists. We're not determinists like our Muslim friends. We believe God works in our sinful hearts to release us from sin so that we are able to cry out in saving faith. We were slaves to sin. But now we are able to choose Him by crying out to Him in the faith that God gives us. Listen, here's the great paradox. It's not, it's not this part that God has chosen for His Word to judge and divide. The great paradox is that one day when we stand before God, there will be those without fruit who will acknowledge that it is their sin that sends them into eternal hell. And those of us who enter into fellowship with God will acknowledge we had nothing to do with it. It was all God's work. That's, that's the paradox. That's the hard thing that, that Dave hadn't told me over the phone how to figure out yet. <laughs> but I think Dave's going to be there with me because I've seen a fruitful life. <laughs> and we'll talk about it then, right? Oh, I long for you to be there as well. Listen. If God is tugging your heart at all, respond to Him. but it is revealed to you. Take hold of it. Live your life for Him. Live a fruitful life. Let's pray.
Oh Jesus, I so long for those here to know You. I so feel the richness of the text and the poverty of the preacher. And yet I know Your Word does its great power regardless of me or anything else. Lord, thank You for that promise. Lord God, we pray that in Your mysterious and powerful ways You would visit us here at Redeemer. Lord, we're just a small gathering and yet in Your economy we know that great fruitfulness can happen here that would confound the world. So let us take hold of your word in our hearts and respond with long-term, deep-seated, rooted obedience that produces much fruit. For Christ's sake and to his glory. Amen.